0: Welcome back to
1: Institutionalized, a podcast for American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fade Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of
0: City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing this week? I'm good, Charles. I have been working on a long piece about this Harvard professor who kind of got crucified in the media and then persecuted by... Various bureaucracies at his university. I'm Um, persecuting Harvard professors. I mean, yes, like I am too. But, 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 but in this particular case, case yes, this was a bad persecution. This was a good one. But yeah, I know the story should be out by the time this episode is out. But basically, you know, it's one of these cases involving you know various title nine bureaucrats and then and then other bureaucrats and kind of the machinations that they employ to sort of entrap and punish and
1: this is, uh,
0: various progress like
1: a is a particular issue because harvard did the same thing to my now colleague roland fryer
0: yes something i mentioned in my in my article and obviously there was something like this i guess that the, the main offender there wasn't really the title nine office per se but in a at princeton obviously with joshua katz right but it is this trend of of of, yeah title nine offices often kind of working in conjunction with other offices that maybe have even actually fewer federally imposed constraints on them sort of working in tandem to like punish perceived political enemies of of the university or of their I feel like, uh, I feel like that's a good, I feel like it's a good segue. Oh, yes. Uh,
1: indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Why, don't, why don't you tell, I mean, we're talking about Title IX this week. Why don't you, why
0: don't you tell listeners a little bit about what we're going to be covering? Sure. So, I mean, we've done a few key episodes on various aspects. We, we've touched on Title IX before, often in the context of transgender stuff, but obviously it's a much broader law than that. The trans stuff is really a pretty recent sort of innovation, you know. For years, especially starting in the Obama era, there were all these debates about sexual assault on college campuses and how Title IX offices were handling it, concerns raised about the lack of due process, and so forth. What's funny, right, is that Title IX is like a 37-word law that was kind of passed really quietly with no debate as part of these 1972 education amendments. Nobody really cared about it. Nobody thought it was going to create these huge bureaucracies. And now Title IX, you know, affects everything from women's sports to transgender people in sports, to sexual harassment, litigation, to free speech, to who gets to use the bathroom. And we'll introduce our guest in a minute. But basically, the the subject of this episode is how the hell did we get from this thirty seven word law to this massive regulatory regime across higher education? Charles, what's what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think that what our what our guest
1: work talks about. I mean, our, we, we've talked in a prior episode actually with our with my colleague, there's peer about the sort of concept of institutional leapfrogging, and you know, I. I I, we've talked in other contexts about sort of the way in which ambiguities in law, the, the the sort of minor components, the the sort of unthought about ambiguities in law, can have not even unintended consequences, but can sort of unfold into things dramatically different from what they once were. So you know, the the the, the intersection of trans and line is really very interesting because it's very clearly not in what we may call the original intent of the law, the original the original public meaning of the law. But I, you know, I think I think tracing the history of IX, as our guest has, is a great example of the way in which ambiguities, in this case, in the meaning, the notion of equality, of equality on the basis of, I'm really sort of discrimination, but discrimination is the opposite of equality. The way in which ambiguities in the meaning of those concepts can have dramatic unintended consequences, which have a, you know, operate through a logic of their own rather than through any nefarious intent. What are you, what are you interested in this week?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm basically interested in that. I just want to read the text of the law so that our our listeners have some idea of just how big a gulf there is between what the law says and what it does in practice, right? So here's what the law says. This is the entirety of Title IX. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. That's, that's it. That is all the law says. It doesn't mention athletics. It doesn't mention sexual harassment. It doesn't mention any of the topics that are associated with Title IX controversies. And it's not at all clear how anyone, you don't even have to be an originalist, but just like a textualist, would kind of get that from the law. And yet, here we are. But first, a word from our sponsors.
2: From the grocery
1: store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone.
0: So, with that, Charles, why don't why don't you introduce our guest? A great guy to talk about all of this with. I think it has structured
1: both of our thoughts on this topic. R. Shep Melnick is the Thomas P. O'Neill Jr. Professor of American Politics at Boston College and co-chair of the Harvard Program on Constitutional Government. Shep, sorry for taking shots at Harvard earlier. He's the author of many articles on courts, agencies, and public policy as well as three books, most recently and relevantly, The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education. Shep, welcome
0: to Institutionalized. It's a real pleasure to be here. So we, go we like to start with sort of provocative questions. You know, you've written that Title IX basically achieved all of its initial objectives and then some, right? When the law passed, 57% of college students were male and 43% were female. By 2010, the numbers had flipped. Women now earn more degrees than men. They do better in grade school. Someone might look at this and just say, mission accomplished. So why not just repeal Title IX? Or, or like, why do we even need it? And why is it still around, given that we've basically done everything that it seemed to originally set out to do?
2: That is the key question. So I just want to reinforce what you said about remarkable success of women in education. As you mentioned, they're doing better in, virtually every phase of education. They're receiving more MAs. They're receiving more bachelor's degrees. They're finishing their college degrees more frequently. They're getting more PhDs. They are actually more, There are more women than men in law school, about as many in med school as men. So it's a remarkable turnaround from a time in 1970, 72, when there are many programs that wouldn't admit women, they discriminated very heavily against female faculty members. So there was a lot to do. And the turnaround has been dramatic. So I think then the question is, as women have done better educationally, why has Title IX expanded its reach and become more controversial? We don't hear people saying today that, Dartmouth should be all male, as many people said in the 1970s. That, that battle has been won, and I think it's a great thing that it has been won. So my basic argument is that the, the purpose of Title IX, as interpreted by courts and by regulators, has fundamentally changed. Their focus is no longer on equal educational opportunity for the women in schools or people about to go to school, but trying to re-educate everyone. Uh, the public, faculty, students, respective students alike, about the meaning of sex, sexuality, gender, sexual mores. And that's one of the reasons why the transgender issue has suddenly become so explosive, because it's an effort to try to change the way that all of us think about what sex is, what gender is, what sexuality is. I'll just here put in a plug for your Colleague Lear Safir, who wrote his dissertation under me, has just has really opened my eyes to a lot of the things that are going on in that realm. Uh, Let me just add one thing that it is true that the operative part of titles nine is those 37 words that you Mm -hmm. read. But in all statutes, there tends to be a lot of material surrounding that. Sure. (laughs) So so there, there is material on how the law is to be enforced. Um, uh, through funding cutoffs. And the first thing I'd point out about that, that's never been used. We use all kinds of roundabout ways, mainly court enforcement, but also these endless investigations. And the other thing I'd point out about, the two, two, that they are, the Office for Civil Rights and Department of Education is supposed to use notice and comment rulemaking and have their rules signed by the president. They almost never do that. They do things through dear college letters and investigations. So it certainly lacks, lacks transparency. And the third thing I point out is that there are many exceptions to the, the coverage of Title IX that we would not allow in any way in the area of race. So we can say that private colleges can discriminate on the basis of race, of, of sex in admissions. And there is this little brief amendment that was passed on athletics saying that you can have separate men's teams and women's teams, but you have to have some sort of equality. We, won't, we don't have separate black and white basketball teams. We don't say, well, if white guys can't cut it, we should have a special team for them. But we, so sex and race are, are different, even though we use the Title VI race model for passing. Title IX, right, right. So
1: let's. I I want to I want to dig into some of the distinction and a bunch of the other stuff. I want to back up just for listeners who may not be in the know. Can you just sort of give a potted history of Title IX? What what is it? Where does it come from? You know, for for example, Title IX is it's it's not in part of the original Civil Rights Act. It's in the Higher Education Act. But, what you know, what what what's the context to its passage? Sure.
2: Yeah, I'll try to give a quick history of this. It's Pretty interesting. When the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, one of the surprising features of the act was that for Title VII on employment discrimination, there was an amendment on the floor of the House passed by an opponent of the law, Judge Smith from Virginia, who added sex to the bans on discrimination in private employment. And he, in part, wanted to burden the that act was so many controversial matters that he wanted to defeat it. But many, there were a few women in the House at that time. They strongly supported it. It actually ran into almost no opposition. So by the time you got to 1970, we had this odd thing where for employment, there was a ban on sex discrimination, but in education, there wasn't. An influential member of the House Edith Green from Oregon, wanted to add sex to the list of prohibited discriminations under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that basically applies to every institution that receives federal funds. Civil Rights Group said, no, this is the middle of busing. We don't want to open up Title VI to amendment." So Edith Green, who was on the education committee, said, well, I'll put it on an education Amendments, the 1972 Omnibus Education Amendments. There was negotiation in the House about what it would cover, whether it would cover private institutions or not. The Ivy League schools opposed to having it applied to, to their schools that tended to be sex segregated at the time. So another shine in Harvard. And, but it finally passed the House. In the Senate, Senator By was the chief sponsor. He added on the floor, there was just a little bit of debate not much at all, and By later explained that the the House and Senate had already passed the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution and sent it to the states. So this seemed like no big deal, because all kinds of sex discrimination would soon be unconstitutional. Um, So they were putting things like this on a bunch of pieces of legislation with no controversy, and just to move forward one bit, when the Department of Health and Education and Welfare started to write regulations on this, starting in 1973, the only major bullet of contention was athletics. And that was really controversial for the reason that in this area, we established the precedent of separate but equal. Again, something we wouldn't do in race. Then the big question is, what happens to sports? How do you figure out what is equal? And the NCAA, which is, I think, the devil in much of this, it's so much in modern education, basically tried to, to exempt sports, and they failed. They failed in Congress, they failed in sports. And then there was this long, drawn-out battle over how you could figure out what's equal. And HEW just reverted to ambiguity that took a long time to resolve.
0: And, and could you chat a bit about how schools did end up eventually and, and bureaucrats end up kind of assessing equality in the athletics context. Cause this is something I think a lot of people don't realize and, and also how that, what they ended up doing had a lot of potentially harmful downstream effects on educational culture.
2: Right. Yeah. i um, actually, I just finished writing an article on this for the Marquette sports law journal. Oh, interesting. Well, I, this is very much on my mind. The, this was a really difficult thing to figure out. What does it mean to have equal opportunities for athletics when you have separate teams? One option was to simply try to tally off all the opportunities that men and women have, from varsity to JV, to club, to intramural, to recreational, and then see if they're equal. But of course, that means you have to give weights to everything. So how many yoga classes does it take to equal a football team? Football is the real problem here. So expensive raises the revenue, so many scholarships, so many athletes, so many head injuries we've And so they basically went, well, we're gonna leave it ambiguous. And then in this is a good good indication of the way in which policy evolves, the leapfrogging we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there were the 1975 regulations. And then in 1979, the Office for Civil Rights in the Carter administration issued an interpretation of the regulations. And buried in that was this little thing called the three part test that in itself was ambiguous about what you do when you don't have an equal number of men and women athletes. And then that later got interpreted by federal courts to say that you had to keep increasing the number of varsity female athletes until it equaled the proportion of women in the student body. And by then, it was over 50% female. So we had over 50% of varsity athletes be female. Now, that was highly controversial. The thing that I try to point out that gets forgotten is that we started measuring only varsity athletes. Um, which I think was a huge mistake. Why did we do this? Number one, because it's easy to measure. Regulatory agencies want things that are easy to measure. Number two, because the, the one of the biggest supporters of Title IX was a group called the Women's Sports Federation, that is run by professional women athletes who want to increase the visibility of female athletics and basically do for. Women's athletics, what the NBA and NFL do, which is to use colleges as a free farm system, and other groups fell into line on this. And the most important other group was the NCAA, that first tried to kill Title IX in sports, and then said, if we can't kill it, we're going to take it over. So they they killed the women's organization that was really organizing sports for women, which is really a fine organization they ran it into the ground, and then they took over following the male model of let's have really highly competitive sports at the the college level, let's have NCAA sponsored championships and we'll subsidize this. So they really want to take the, the, the male model and apply it to women and they largely succeeded. So the emphasis was all on, let's put emphasis, money on women's sports, and I, I'll just, I mean, it's a long story, but I'll say that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that this was extremely bad for women for education, because the women that started to get recruited and admitted were people who had spent most of their activity, their attention, on sports rather than academics. There were fewer fewer of real student athletes who were women. Right. And many of the benefits of this went to a small group of people in D1 schools. And in D3 schools that are highly selective, they, the premium that was put on athletics as opposed to academic achievement expanded dramatically. And I don't see how that's good for women's education. I don't think it's been good for men's education, but this aspect of Title IX has been completely ignored by advocacy groups and by people who judge the success of Title IX in education
0: right well so so one of the interesting things that the some schools said when they were kind of resisting yeah. this, this sort of new regulatory regime was look you know women just aren't as interested in these sorts of sports and so you're just not going to get parity kind of organically right. and then the first circuit in, in this case you talk about in, in your work cohen versus brown university you make this interesting argument where they basically say well if you say that you know, Title IX lets institutions provide fewer athletic opportunities to women because women are less interested in sports. You're kind of reinforcing sort of, the interests themselves are the result of stereotypes. So you're reinforcing the stereotypes that lead to the the different interests. And so you're ultimately reinforcing the discrimination. I mean, can you talk about how in this context and potentially others, is Title IX regulation through the courts it, it doesn't just sort of impose policies on schools, but it, it effectively imposes almost empirical claims, including almost unfalsifiable empirical claims about what men and women are like and what they're interested in.
2: Right. That, that's very well put. And you put your finger on a key court decision, which was Brown University versus Cohen by Judge Hugh Bounds, who was a judge that I really respect. But I think that he took kind of line in the wrong direction here. And you, as you explained, what what Bounds said, and almost every other court followed this, is that to the extent that there are any differences in the abilities and interests, athletically, of men and women, it is a result of stereotypes that have been perpetrated by our institutions, especially our educational institutions. So then we get back to the really central change in Title IX, which is we have to change these stereotypes. We have to change the way students think even before they're in college and in society at large, because the argument is that there can be no natural differences between men and women at interest in sports. That is completely conventional. And the motto of sports became build it and they will come from the movie Neymar blanking Mm -hmm. right now. Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Build it and they will come. If you provide more opportunity, they will show that they are interested right. in sports. Now, I, I'm quite happy to say that men and women are, are as interested in sports as one another, but does that mean that they're all interested in the same type of sports? Does it all mean that, they, that women are interested in the most competitive level or as opposed to things that they can use in later life? I mean, I'm t- I tend to think that in this regard, women are smarter than men. And that there might be a different range of interest, but that was considered to be, you know, outside the realm of something we could entertain because above all, the purpose of Title IX became undoing pernicious stereotypes about men and And nowhere was that seen more clearly than in athletics.
1: I want to sort of expand outwards from athletics and move move the story forward a little bit because obviously, you know, Title IX, the, the early disputes about Title IX related to athletics, but Today and in recent years, as you alluded to at the start, it's been deployed in all sorts of cases that DFS you know, tangentially or only sort of relevant to certainly the, the original disputes around it. In particular, you know, I, I was in college towards the tail end of what you might call either the campus rape sex crisis or the campus rape panic, depending on your interpretation of what was going on there. But it does seem like the Obama administration was fairly aggressive with the use of Title IX to target what identified as a, a a culture of sexual violence on many college campuses. Can you talk about how it got from how 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 we got to a place where the Obama administration thought about the federal government as being empowered to target these like deep cultural issues on campus through, again, this like 37-word hunk of the law?
2: Sure. But yeah, that's another very good question. So I I'd start off by saying that these things happen incrementally right and they started off with i think a completely reasonable position which is that sexual harassment just like racial harassment can affect people's ability to remain in the job or receive an education if women were constantly being told that women shouldn't be here that this is they should be home cooking that they should be they're not able to do math and science and that and institutions allowed this that strikes right me as discriminatory.
1: This is just like what former institutionalized guest Gail Harriet has pointed to in workplace discrimination.
2: Right? Yeah, and, and uh, as as Gail knows, the the original transfer came from Title VII employment cases, and it was it was added almost verbatim to Title IX. The, so this really escalated in the 1990s with the Adida Hill issue and some studies showing that sexual harassment in high schools was pretty severe. And the, uh, the, the, the courts and OCR, the opposite of civil rights, started to issue more guidelines, never rules. They never use rules under the Administrative Procedures Act, always guidelines and Dear college letters, basically saying that schools have to take pay attention to this. They have to have procedures for dealing with it, fully for reporting it, bring completely reasonable regulations. And the Supreme Court issued two decisions on this in 98 and 99, basically saying that the federal government cannot impose very much on schools here because Title I is quite vague and there are important federalism issues. So that schools are only liable for monetary damages if they had actual knowledge of the harassment, that was severe and eliminated the possibility of taking advantage of, of education, and that they had resorted responded with deliberate indifference, so extremely high standards for what constituted the responsibilities of educational institutions under Title I. The day before George W. Bush was inaugurated, the most midnight of midnight regulations, OCR issued regulation saying, well, the Supreme Court said that that applies only to rule to to suits for monetary damages. And we can impose much more demanding standards under Title IX. And they did that. Again, I don't think that the standards issued in 2001 were terrible. They were a little more demanding than before. But, you know, again, I think within the realm of reason. Then the big change came in 2011 with the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter and then another guidance document in 2014. And the big change was that the focus was no longer on, let's make sure you you provide opportunities for reporting misconduct and taking action against the miscreants, what I call the bad apple attitude, to what you said was, we have to change the culture. There is a rape culture in the White House, and President, Vice President Biden repeatedly said, we have to change the culture. What that meant was that you, there, there's a long string of things schools had to do. Not only go after perpetrators, but have t- trainings, Have a variety of of ways to deal with the after effects of sexual misconduct, even if it did take place on campus. So a vast expansion of the responsibilities of institutions, even for things over which they had no control. And again, the purpose was to change the culture. And if you're looking for a for a theme that ties all this together, athletics was about changing culture and and ending stereotypes. This is about changing the culture of how. Men and women, boys and girls relate to each other, often in private, and transgender was changing the culture about how we think about what sex is. And I'll just point out one other thing, I don't want to go too long about this, that the original purpose of Title IX was to look at what universities and high schools and elementary schools were doing to deny educational opportunities for women. With, With the sexual harassment issue, it became not what they were doing. But their responsibility is to police thousands and thousands of students, teachers, administrators who were especially troublesome civil was the, the behavior that's taking place in private. So the policing responsibilities in schools were dramatically expanded.
0: Right. What one thing that is interesting here is that, you know, we now take for granted that sexual harassment is a form of sexual discrimination. But as you've hit on in your work, there there were a number of court cases. I think these were in the 70s and 80s that that confronted a kind of paradox. I and mean, that's the paradox of bisexuality. So say there's a, a bisexual who harasses men and women equally. Well, they're not discriminating. How can be they be discriminating? And there, there, there were all these court cases where these these judges try to like puzzle out, like they're like, well, we we can't really say this is harassment. And then I think, like, the government, or maybe it was a court decision, but, but basically, eventually, they just sort of said, we can't solve this one, so we're just going to say, all harassment is discrimination, basically with no explanation, because it was, like, too embarrassing.
2: Right. Yeah, that's a yeah. pretty good summary. So, the, when the, the courts first started looking at this, why is harassment discriminatory? One way of looking at it could have been to say, well, it's almost always aimed at women. hmm that's not what Title IX says. It doesn't say simply, you know, discrimination against women. So they said, well, it could be, you can, you can harass men too. But then, as you point, and the argument was, well, if I say make a sexual advance, let's take an easy mm-hmm. case with pro quo, sleep with me or I'll fail you, you know, which is really disgusting behavior. It's not be allowed in any university. But why is it a federal issue? Mm-hmm. Right? So the, they said, well, because if, if I, as a male actor, I say this to a, a female student, I am doing this because she's female. I don't do the same thing to a male. Same thing if, if my female colleagues did it to a male. Or you could say, well, what if a, a gay male does it to another male? Well, it's because he's male. But as you point out, what if there is an indiscriminate harassment? What if there is a bisexual person who is... Treat members of both sex horribly. Well, as, as uh, Robert Bork pointed out when he was on the D.C. Circuit, that person seems to get a free ride because he's, he's indiscriminate. So he said, that can't be what Congress meant. But uh, this had gotten so much momentum that finally the court said, let's, let's forget it. And oddly, the key case here was a decision by Justice Scalia Well, basically said, you know, we don't want to be looking into the motivations of this person. Because in in one case, we don't know whether the the harassers were really kind of closeted gay men or homophobic men or some combination of the two. You know, there's no way to know. So let's just say if you engage in sexual harassment, it's discriminatory. But I'll just add one caveat, which is, the understanding at the time was that this harassment would be so severe and persistent, the terms the Supreme Court used, that it would prevent people from staying in employment and staying in school, which is a lot different from the, the, the way in which it was interpreted during the Obama administration. And I'll just give you one example. In this case against the University of Montana, it became a president center. A center. The, originally, the university said, well, this has to be persistent and severe and pervasive. And OCI said, no, 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 you can't say that. You have to nip it in the bud. Even if it's, it seems minor, you have to take action against it because we can't let it grow. Again, you have to change the culture, not punish the bad apples. So you can see how something that seemed to have, you know, pretty sensible at the beginning, grew and grew and grew. So finally you get something that had sort of a much different purpose.
1: Yeah, so I mean I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by this process. And this is both the comment and question. The 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 best kind of DC Washington, DC question, yeah. a comment that's a question. But it seems to me like the the process you're describing, I mean, happens all over the place. We covered this, you know, it shows up in employment law, it shows up in, I think, lots of areas outside of the civil rights state. But where 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 you sort of have a principle, you have an idea of, okay, this thing is bad. We 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 want equality between men and women, and then there are weird exceptions or edge cases, and you have to litigate around them, or you have to legislate around them. And different institutions, first one institution sort of produces a piecemeal solution to the problem, and another institution adopts that piecemeal solution, but the 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 exception remains sort of problematic, and running up against that, requ- you know, re- requires you to continuously rearticulate new sort of edge cases, new epicycles to the system. So you know, I, I part of part of what I think is significant here is like this is a you know this is a model of institutional change of how we get to where we are today that does not necessarily involve malice or even perverse ideology on the part of people who are propagating these the ideas. It's like here are some principles we all commonly agree upon. Now let's make them play out over fifty years, and we discover they produce all sorts of insane implications. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that model? Does that sound accurate? Do you think that we should? You know, to, 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 to what extent is you know, the, the status quo a function of that kind of evolution relative to, I don't know, I think, I think the people who are like, it's, it's, it's the work of a vast conspiracy or whatever. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, I, the process that you've described, I called uh, a policy leapfrog, where one institution takes a small step and then the other one says, well, we're going to accept that. We're going to take it one step further. And then it, it builds upon sure. itself. That clearly happened in all of these areas. The Obviously, I think that that is a deeply flawed model. Now, in the best of all worlds, you would have Congress making decisions. What do we mean by this? But Congress has said basically nothing about this. It's really been, that has been one of the key parts of the problem the Congress being unable to, and unwilling to engage in these issues. The one thing with, that I have, Constantly propose is that we actually take the Administrative Procedure Act and the, the, the requirements of Title IX itself seriously. The Title IX says that you, the agency, Office for Civil Rights, has the authority to issue rules and regulations. It doesn't say guidelines, it doesn't say, dear college writers, it says the rules and regulations, mm-hmm. which are governed by the notice and final Rulemaking procedure of the APA. And it says, in this case, I'm just shocked that this gets forgotten. Congress was so concerned about the expansion of administrative power in 1964 and 1972, they said, these rules have to be signed by the President of the United States. The President has to take responsibility. Since 1975, that has never happened. We've gone through the, these cycles of leapfrogging with so called dear colleague letters. And I just, for the, for the record, I want to say that Catherine Lehman, head of this well, Office for of Civil Rights, is not my colleague. And so the idea that these are letters to colleagues is so ridiculous that we forget how ridiculous it is. So, and I will say, I don't often give the Trump administration credit for anything, especially having to do with the rule of law that they seem to have no interest in. But the Office of Civil Rights of the Trump administration used notice and comment rulemaking and did an exceptionally thorough job of explaining what it was doing in revising the sexual harassment regulations. And what that did is to force the Biden administration to go through the same process. And they had come up with a proposal in the summer. They're making many, many changes. They're proposing them. But it's much more transparent. It is much more participatory. And I think that they have had to be much more careful yeah. uh, and a slightly more moderate than they would otherwise. So there is this vicious cycle of dear colleague letters and leapfrogging. I'm starting to see a somewhat more virtuous cycle. Once you start having more formality and more participation, in more explanation and the rules then i think quality making gets marginal better. what i wanted to ask was almost the was almost
1: the was the opposite which is you know it it, it, it seems like one of your arguments the title nine has been enforced basically through uh, sort of the vague implication of a threat right like total it's it's a a through nose comment rule making instead they issued these dear colleague letters B, no institution of higher education has ever actually had its federal funding revoked. Like the, you know, the, the the stick has never actually been used. And this seems like a situation if I'm, you know, I mean, a lot of the universities that would do this just refuse to take federal funding, right? Hill, Hillsdale College doesn't take federal funding at all. So they're not bound by any of this. But you know, it, it, it seems like if you wanted to build a test case, what I would do is say, find a university that's sympathetic to me, and I would say, to your colleague letters or advisory, we're not going to follow any of this, and see what happens. So what, what is, 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 is that an approach? Bracketing, trying to find somebody who's willing to do that, a university president willing to pick that fight, what do you see happening with that approach?
2: Sure. Yeah, the first, let me just emphasize what you said, is that since funding cutoffs are really off the table, you have, the OCR will threaten it. And probably even more importantly, Title IX offices within the university will threaten it to us. And again, it's about the smallest thing. I was told if I didn't get my book order in on time, BC, Boston College could lose its federal funding. And I laughed at them. I said, that's not true. <laughs> For one thing, that's not what the federal regulations say. And they will. So stop threatening. But how, so how are they enforced? There are two main ways. One is so-called private right of action. So a, a private person, say someone whose sports team was discontinued, can sue the university for monetary damages and for injunctions. And that's for a long way, time was the way in which the rules has enforced. That requires that, that's, that OCR have the cooperation of courts. And that does allow an opportunity for, for schools to say, no, no, these are not valid regulations. The First Circuit decision, you mentioned Brown University, to its credit, the president of Brown University was really infuriated by the fact that he was told how to spend money. And he had to spend more money on sports and less on libraries. He was, he was a person of great integrity. He fought and fought and he mentally lost. But he's the exception, and it is a bit surprising how few schools have been willing to fight back. And now the the other method of enforcement, which I think requires some explanation and is, I think, going on right now with the Biden administration, is to use investigations as the punishment. And because under the sexual harassment rules. They couldn't rely on the court because the courts were so far away. Basically, what OCR did was say, we're going to issue these extremely expensive, embarrassing, lengthy investigations of schools, and we're going to keep it going until they give up and they sign a compliance agreement. And once they sign that compliance agreement, that is going to include building up the Title IX office requiring lots of cooperation with the Office for of Civil Rights, I call this strategy of the, the, the investigate and colonize strategy so that we don't have to go to court. And I think that uh, I just received a press release of Office of Civil Rights on racial discrimination in discipline. Those guidelines have been revoked, but through the enforcement process, through investigations, OCR has gone back to enforcing it. Right. So that is, I think, the, the other main way in which enforcement is taking place. But of course, it's even less transparent than other ways. So, I, 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 this is a very disturbing the way in which investigations are used to pressure schools to do things that are not in rules and regulations, not even in guidelines.
0: Right. Well, and, and also, I mean, you know, the thing is that this could be triggered not just by, say, a, a alleged sexual assault, but by just a number of instances of allegedly discriminatory speech, right? And that's the other thing. There's the concern about this regulating speech. So, so what I, one thing I want to ask about, though, is that it, it seems like, as with other aspects of the civil rights state, these these Provisions and and prohibitions on discrimination, including discrimination qua speech, are really selectively enforced, right? So here's an example. Charles and I both went to Yale. And in the past decade or so at Yale, I know of at least two different women, and it's probably more, who wrote op-eds in the student newspaper complaining that Yale men were really bad in bed they're hilarious they are hilarious (laughs) and 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 honestly and honestly and honestly and this gets to the the men (laughs) uh well so honestly it gets to the point i i am not sure that those articles were false as a very i mean i mean the jet they relied on large generalizations about men they stereotyped an entire group of people Probably, the stereotypes, given the way that hookups and stuff happen at Yale, have a grain of truth to them that men are not terrific, right? In bed. It seems to me that though, you know, re- those repeated, so pervasive, sort of prurient laments about an entire group of people, this seems pretty severe. you're You're saying that all men are bad in bed, which is something that you know no one wants to hear in college. I mean, I mean severe pervasive harassment, like that sounds like it could be the basis of a hostile environment claim under Title IX, if you just like, you know, apply the standards equally, because imagine if like a bunch of men were writing in the school paper. Yeah, you know, Yale women really suck in bed, right? They don't get us off. I mean, you know, it, of course, like, you know, Yale would be like terrified. Oh, shit, you know, Catherine Layman will come after us. But like because it's women writing it about right because it's women writing it about men you know there's just no there's no follow through I guess sort of my my question is that I mean I'm curious what, what you make of just that example but also you know there's there's folks like Chris Rupo, Charles's colleague at the Manhattan Institute who proposed using other parts of civil rights law like Title VII to push back on some of the really excessive DEI trainings with race and to say, look, this is actually just anti-white and so it violates the Civil Rights Act because the Civil Rights Act doesn't just prohibit discrimination against blacks, it prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, period. And so I'm sort of wondering, do you think that it would be possible to use Title IX to push back on some of the really excessive kind of anti-male stuff? Or,
2: or do you think the bureaucracy is just too deeply dug in? I guess the first thing I say is that more evidence of things are really in bad shape at Yale. We have so many, so many <laughs> cues of evidence of that.
0: Many, many such cases,
2: yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go Go blue. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two, two parts of the answer to that. There are ways in which there are institutional situations where women are given preference. that And Mark Perry at AEI has pointed this out. He's brought suit against them. And I think that the case is strong if you say, you know, that this this uh, is going to be a special coding class only for women. Mm. That's a violation of Title I. And as, you know, originally, you know, when women were really excluded from many areas, trying to have things in, that aided their entry into academic areas made some sense, doesn't make nearly as much sense now, because we know that the group that is struggling tends to be men, which I don't think is a result of institutional bias. It tends to be a result of defects in our culture. But so there are ways in which how could be used that way. As far as uh, speech goes, clearly these laws are being used selectively. Often to a ridiculous extent, with the the ridiculous extent being Laura Kipnis, who was investigated for a few things she said in an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is about as boring a publication as one will ever find. And then I got to say that when she wrote. It's a pretty crazy publication. Yeah. What was that? They've they've
1: gotten
0: kind of crazy, but. (laughs) <laughs> not ways it, it, that not wasted. that uh, it's a little it's, it's a little honestly i mean it's a little bipolar because they they publish true. some stuff that i think is like really nutty but then they also publish like very serious you know criticisms yeah. of, so, you know, sorry sorry i was gonna I yeah,
2: say that I, i've been interviewed by them repeatedly and i found their coverage to be very fair I was treated, you know? yeah so but i just want to know that when laura kipnis wrote about this in her in her uh book she basically accused the one graduate student of litigiousness, and the student sued her basically for, uh, right. claim, for a tort saying, no, I'm not litigious. I'm just su- suing you again. And I thought she had no sense of irony. But the, the more serious issue is to the extent to which the, the, the speech implications of, of, of creating a hostile environment can be used for political speech is extremely dangerous. The, uh, again, the OCR in 2020 substantially reduced the extent to which speech was covered by sexual harassment. The, the Biden administration has expanded, not back to what it was in 2011, 2014, but has expanded it, I think, dangerously so. And I guess I would not like to see the president expanded to try to cover anti-male speech. I think we we should not try to go down that road, but rather should use our effort mind right. to narrow the definition. Sure. Of the
1: Shep, Shep, not an MRA. Good to good to know. I think we're we're coming close to wrapping up. Aaron, do you wanna do you wanna offer sort of closing thoughts? What are you? What's your what's your take from the conversation?
0: Yeah, you know, we've obviously been talking about institutions and kind of bureaucratic structures, logics, incentives, as we often do, but. You know, I think that that in the background of this particular discussion has been a, a broader cultural kind of crisis where, you know, you talk about separate but equal, right, and how we don't think that that makes sense with race, but we do want to say that it, work, it that it's important in certain aspects of gender, right, with athletics. And it, it seems to me that 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 raises this interesting question of, well, so why are these things different? And presumably it's because, well men and women are different right and 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 yet you know this bureaucratic apparatus emerged at a time when i think the broader culture with the sexual revolution was in many ways trying to treat men and women as interchangeable they have different parts but like they can have sex the same way you know women casual sex same way men can whatever you know and i just would close by thinking you know that there's to, to resolve a lot of these questions, part of what I think has made it hard is that we don't really have a coherent, shared anthropology of men and women, a shared account of what they are and what makes them different. Um, and that's only gotten, you know, that problem has only gotten worse with all the kind of avant-garde, you know, 50 different genders that have been invented in the past three years. So, you know, I, I think that, yes, it, it 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 is important to talk about the kind of incremental cultural logics, but I mean bureaucratic logics, but there's also kind of a, a a deeper cultural crisis working in the background here. And I don't know what the solution to that is, but I just sort of raise it as another thing to consider. I don't know charles what what's your takeaway? Oh, see, I'm I'm fixing on the
1: bureaucratic institutional logics the are uh, Not fixing it. no, I mean I think there is you know it's, it's very Marx, like civil rights contain seeds of its own no destruction. You gotta hide in the contradictions until you reach the point at which it is no longer tolerable and the system breaks down. But I I mean I you know, I, I tend to think that logic is correct. People people often misread Carl Schmidt, Carl Schmidt the Nazi jurisprudence guy who got a revival among the left in the fifties, sixties, seventies. And, and the, now Marx, and now and now among the right. Yeah, he's I bad. You know, he yeah. was a Nazi. Not great. But no, I he in when when they talk, you know, they, they sort of say Schmidt's point in the in Etholic theology says uh, that, you know, the 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 line is sovereignty who decides on the exceptions. Like, well, every time something weird happens, that's an example of sovereignty. Everything's totally arbitrary. It's like that's not actually the point that Schmidt is making. The point Schmidt is making is that liberalism attempts to articulate these comprehensive systems of law. That account for all situations, but exception is an intrinsic feature of law running up against reality, which is always more variegated than the legal accounting that we offer for it. And so, you know, sovereignty exists in the space we have to make a decision about. Well, really the point of sovereignty exists in the space we have to make a decision about when one of these exceptions occurred. But let's bracket that. The point that's relevant here is you know, we 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 have systems of law, systems of arrangement that always contain their own that that, that contain problematics, that contain, edge cases that will rapidly be found. And I like the model of, I like the model of thinking about the evolution of dealing with those edge cases as propagating all sorts of unintended consequences. I think it's a powerful tool for describing how uh, contemporary experience comes about in a way that solves a lot of the questions of, you know, is this, is this a conspiracy? Is this ideology? It's like, no, it's, it's actually very mundane. It's a thing, it's, it's just sort of a feature of how systems of ideology work. Yeah, I think I think we should probably do some recommendations. Aaron, do you want to start us off?
0: Yeah, totally. So we, we touched on this kind of in passing, but the, the, the imperative of administrative convenience, right? How that shaped a lot of the athletics regulation. It's easier to count varsity teams. Well, there, there's a good book that I may have brought it up on the podcast before, but I'm going to formally recommend it here, which is Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. Which is basically an account of how the modern state, by necessity, needs to, needs to come up with sort of simplifications that allow for administrative convenience, right? As these big state bureaucracies have to govern large, diverse populations, they need to find ways to, in Scott's words, make the populations legible. Right. So, for example, you know, things like the metric system, other other forms of measurements were invented kind of in part because of just the need to rule over a large area. And I think you can kind of see the same thing, Scott's thesis about legibility playing out in the Title IX context where everything has to be reduced to numbers, right, that bureaucracy can tally because otherwise it's just going to be really hard to, you know, Enforce all these ideas about equality and discrimination. So that would be my recommendation to read James C. Scott's book and then to think about how that argument can apply to the civil rights state. Charles?
1: Yeah. My my argument's actually not a text. It's really for our younger listeners, because I was I was only sort of allowed for this. We we've been talking about I've been talking about euthanasia a fair amount on Twitter. Whatever happened to euthanasia is an issue. I think we'll probably try to do a euthanasia episode. Later on, but I'm fascinated as a as a parallel example of the Terry Schiavo case. This is the, the 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 case of a woman on life support in Florida early 2000s. The, what half of the family wanted to take her off, the other half of the family wanted to keep her on life support. It's a huge fight. I think there was the eventually congressional action on Terry Schiavo. President Bush got involved. But I think it's really interesting as one of these like. Only in a democracy can you have disputes over values. But like actually, what that looks like in practice is not like people sitting around and talking about philosophy. It's concrete cases which galvanize political mm-hmm. change in particular circumstances. And I'm fascinated by what those cases are, where they come from, which ones are and which ones are not, which I think is very topical this episode. So I don't know. My recommendation is learning about Terry Scheiber because I'd like to bring her up in a later episode. Shep, do your recommendation for our listeners.
2: Sure. Yeah, I'll give a couple very quickly. The first is, this is a response to the, the, Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, this, this great book by Deborah Stone called Counting. And basically it's a, how do we come up with the numbers that we use in these bureaucratic systems and shows how counting requires categorizing and often the key policy and ethical decisions are made on how we categorize and how we count. So that's one. The second is on sexual harassment, a, a book by... Tamara Rice right Lay slave that is about to come out, does just, it's very detailed. She's a very careful lawyer, very critical of what the Obama administration has done, but a lot of very helpful suggestions about the direction we should go. And finally, a book that I've just reread by this wonderful political scientist, Hugh Pecklow, who unfortunately died too young, called Thinking Institutionally, hmm. which is what it means to be loyal to the purposes of a... Of an organization, of an institution, the importance of that loyalty, but which also means being willing to criticize the organization when it is desperately in need of that organization. It is we we've been talking here about the, some of the pathologies of institutions, and Heckewell's Thinking Institutionally is by far the best book I've ever read on that topic. Mm-hmm. A Yale graduate, I should point out.
0: <laughs> they, they did. They did produce some some really smart people. That's right. the, the problem. That the problem ask. is that the problem is that many of those smart people, including Catherine Lehman, who went to Yale Law School, now are using their intelligence for nefarious ends. That's always <laughs> the issue with Yale. Right. Yeah. Smart and ethical, not necessarily the same thing. No. Smart and sane.
2: okay. Yeah, um, I just add one one thing about one of the, that the one of the things that I've been surprised at is the extent to which. Good motives seem to pervade so much of this to such a bad effect. And one, when Kevin yeah. was asked what she would do differently after she left here in, in 2016, she said, I can't think of anything I would have done differently. That we were working so hard to, to produce the maximum amount of justice that that's all we could think about. That is a problem when you're so sure you would have the maximum amount of justice. Yeah. yeah. Right.
0: I can't yeah. imagine. Well, and, and, and and you don't actually have the introspection to recognize that maybe you made some errors. Yeah. Uh, Kilimar, right. I remember shortly after the Dobbs leak, you know, Barry Weiss asked Kilimar, you know, where do you think this leak came from? And he said, well, to be honest, I think quite likely it was a, a law clerk who was a graduate of, of Yale Law School because this is the kind of like just moral hubris and willingness to just destroy all norms that like basically we've inculcated in our students. And it's like, yeah. Yeah.
2: By another really outstanding Yale law professor.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: (laughs) Go blue. (laughs) On (laughs) that note, I think that's about all the time we
1: have. Thank you, Shep, so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, Title IX complaints that you'd like to direct to us, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sperium. That's all the time I'm going to give to this episode. Until next time, I'm Charles fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Smarion. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon.